Welcome to What Happens Next, Week 6. I hope everyone is having a wonderful Sunday. We have some fabulous group of speakers this week covering a wide range of topics, including home building, the oil industry, baseball, summer camp, sociology, and medicine. The Chatham House rules apply for the call. We do this because we want the speakers to be as open as possible so we can learn more without putting the speaker at risk. The format of the call will be the same as the previous five weeks. Each speaker will be given six minutes to talk. At around the five-minute point, I may throw in a question or two, and then we're off to the next speaker. I think you'll find the format to be both fun and incredibly informative. After all the speakers have spoken, there will be a general question and answer period where the speakers will be given a chance to discuss their topics. This call will be recorded. Our first speaker today is Steve Alloy. He is CEO of Stanley Martin Homes, which is a large home builder uh, in the Mid-Atlantic region. Steve, why don't you start us off? Great. Thanks, Larry. So in terms of his construction continuing despite the shutdown, uh, home builders are still building in nearly every state in the country because about 45 states deemed us an essential service. And so I have over 1,000 homes under construction across the southeast, and people work in every house every workday. And so our trade association developed national standards for safe construction through social distancing, and everyone takes it very seriously. So construction continues fairly unchanged. In terms of subcontractors coming to work, uh, definitely they are. Uh, Most subcontractor workers are hourly or get paid by the task, and they all need their paychecks. And so they see their friends in restaurants or hotels out of work, and they're overjoyed that construction is still able to go forward every day. And so with a job site with 25 homes under construction, each home will tend to have only one trade, such as a plumbing crew or electrical crew in each house. And so it's pretty easy for them to social distance while they work. Uh, Supply chain for materials, um, that's a new adventure every day. Uh, Thus far, we have not had delays from shortages. Originally, there were issues with products from China. And then Pennsylvania closed manufacturing. Uh, Recently, there's massive factory closures in Mexico. But the large manufacturers built up inventory in the first quarter, and they've been successful at moving production to other factories. So it's not been a problem yet, but it's something we worry about. Um, Customers, uh, in terms of terminating contracts, during the last six weeks, cancellations definitely increased, but they are not up a troubling amount, which is a positive surprise. The lowest price points and the highest price points have been hit the hardest, but in between, the cancellations are okay. It may surprise people, but we have low cancellations from job loss. Um, Job losses have been mostly concentrated in lower-wage service jobs, and there's a smaller percentage of people that buy new homes there. The cancellations are mostly coming from the government disruption in the mortgage market. And so the CARES Act stimulus law enabled mortgage forbearance. But unlike last recession stimulus law, this time there's no requirement to prove hardship. So people hear that they can simply stop paying. And when the mortgage investors saw that, they basically tightened everything. And so some customers that qualified qualified for mortgages six weeks ago, they don't qualify now, and that's what's leading to cancellations in our industry. Um, Next, I assume no new buyers have arrived to buy homes. Uh, That assumption is actually not correct. Uh, We sell lots of homes every single day, and that has absolutely been my biggest surprise. And so what do you, the rest of that, what do you think about your industry's path to recovery? In terms of industry health, we started from a great position as an industry. The market had been fantastic for several quarters, so pre-sold backlogs are high. 
And absent huge cancellations as a group, we have four to six months of strong earnings ahead of us as we deliver homes to customers. And large builders have strong balance sheets, low leverage, so it's pretty good. But overall, our sales will decline some, and the path to recovery for us is about consumer confidence. And that generally will not get better until unemployment declines. Another aspect is that while COVID has led to a severe recession, it's actually helped home building in certain ways. Uh, the first way is it messed up the used home market. So new is gaining market share over used in housing. In Q1, the used home market had the most severe shortage in my lifetime. And then shelter in place made it illegal to have open houses. And people didn't want shoppers coming through their homes anyway. So a huge percentage of used home sellers withdrew their listings. And that compounded the shortage, which has helped home builders. And the second thing is there's also consumer shifts that may come from COVID. And so people are spending a lot of time in their residences, and many are going to want to move. And we also think we're going to see the trend of move to urban areas. And dense multifamily buildings is probably going to shift to where there's more of a let's move back to the suburbs mentality. And it may sound funny, but typically blizzards or shelter in place results in a mini baby boom that's going to come about nine months from now, and that's going to be great for home building. Um, in terms of mortgage rates, stimulating demand, it definitely helps, but rates have been low a long time. Um, demand actually comes from life changes and from various preferences. And what low mortgage rates do for us is they facilitate the capability for people to qualify for mortgages. So we get a benefit from the low rates, but it's not a huge driver for us. And then finally, uh, what happens when someone comes down with a virus who was working on the site? Well, in home building, we generally have one trade in a house at a time, and the crews are being great about social distancing. So if a plumber got sick, the first issue is whether the plumbing company would even tell us as the general contractor. And if we were notified, we would determine whether there were places in the house that needed extra cleaning protocols. But I have over 800 employees, and only two have had COVID. I happen to be one of them. And among the thousands of trade employees I have, I've only heard of a handful on any job sites getting sick. And so it hasn't been a big problem. And back to you, Larry. Great. Um, Steve, well, a couple questions for you. You mentioned um, that the CARES Act has this mortgage forbearance provision and that people are taking advantage of it and it's scared some of the mortgage lenders. But mortgages are still getting, um, getting done. What sort of applicant is facing pressure because of this concern about mortgage forbearance? Who do the, the lenders not want to lend yeah. to for fear to take advantage of this provision? Sure. And so uh, through FHA, you could have gotten a loan with a 580 credit score. In most places, that's now 640. Um, other types of loans, if you could have gotten a 620 or a 640, you now have to be at a 680 credit score. Debt to income ratios have been uh, reduced. So you, 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 you basically, you need to be in a better financial shape to qualify. And it's really hurting the first-time buyer, the lowest-income buyer. That's ironic. Um, and then you mentioned that um, the existing home supply of existing homes is off the market, and that it's encouraging people to go out to your sites and buy new homes. But I, I look at it as a, a temporary phenomena. Those used homes will be on the market um, qu quite soon. Does that mean that, that home building will have a problem after we reopen? Yeah, it's, it's a big question as to what will happen in used because there are people who have wanted to sell this spring that have been waiting. And spring is typically the, the selling season. But 
you know, COVID isn't going to end in a day just because a governor opens up doesn't mean you list your house and you start having people through. And for used homes, people really have to come and see them uh, more than for new homes. And so uh, it's, I think that the used home supply will come back over time and there won't be a giant rush. But yeah, eventually there will be a lot of sellers. That's um, just, it, it, it won't be a, a spike. Thank you, Steve. Our next speaker is Dan Jurgen. He is vice chairman of IHS Market and author of The Prize as well as The Quest. He has a new book coming out called The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. Go ahead, Dan. Thank you, Larry, and I'm finishing the galleys today, but it's already up on Amazon. Uh, this morning I was speaking to the CEO of one of the international oil companies, and he said they had a lot of worst-case scenarios, but nothing like this one. This what's happened in the oil market was not in anybody's scenario. In 1998 and 1986, when oil prices collapsed, demand went up. Not this time. And so what's unfolded in the oil industry is really two phases. Phase one was the shutdown of China, where about 6 million barrels a day out of 100 million barrels a day of market uh, disappeared. Uh, that, we thought at the time, was a lot. It was the end of that phase when the uh, OPEC, non-OPEC meeting in Vienna broke up at the beginning of March. Uh, some of the people there thought, well, okay, this will wipe out or set back U.S. shale and leave them fine. But that's just when the second phase uh, began, and that's where we are now. Just to give you some framework, this month we think world oil demand's down about 30 million barrels a day. That's almost a third of demand, uh, 22 million barrels this quarter. Gasoline is down more than 50% in the U.S., 65% in Europe. Jet fuel is down 70%. And future bookings on the airlines in the United States are down 97%. So that's the context in which there was that big meeting two weeks ago where Donald Trump, who before this had been very anti-OPEC, became the chief negotiator bringing the Saudis and the Russians together. Uh, other factors were at work as well, including U.S. senators who had been supportive of funding Saudi Arabia, uh, U.S. military agreements, saying they weren't anymore. These were Republican senators from oil states. And also the big exporters couldn't sell their oil, so they told them they needed to do something. But Trump really used his influence and power to bring it together and came out with this agreement that starts on May 1 with a 9.7 million barrel a day cut. Uh, others are supposed to cut or have a natural decline. But given what I said about the decline in demand, it's really uh, running, uh, that only takes care of part of the problem. And where we are right now is we're running out of storage. That is where if you can't sell the oil, you've got to put it in storage. If you don't have storage, you have a problem. And that's what happened last week to somebody who had to sell, uh, had basically got rid of their oil at a negative price of almost $40. So what's going to unfold now is in addition to tankers being filled, and I think 22 of them off the coast of Long Beach in California, uh, using them as storage, is people are going to start shutting in production, closing it down. I think we're going to hear about that from our next speaker. And then we're going to have a natural decline in the United States, which will mean the U.S. will probably go down about 3 million barrels a day. Remember, in February, we reached the highest point the United States had ever reached, 13.1 million barrels a day, more than Russia, more than Saudi uh, Arabia. So I think we're going to re obviously we're going to maintain being a major producer, but it is going to be a decline. And if we look to the future uh, for the U.S. shale industry uh, beyond the current D 
deep pain it's in with unemployment and shutting down drilling, access to capital is going to be a big issue. For their, uh, the Main Street programs they put in place is meant to get capital to these companies. And uh, I think, I don't know if it's happened yet, they're supposed to put a liquidity window in for the large E&P companies to ensure they have liquidity. The international companies, of course, are cutting back. Most of them are uh, significantly on investment. Most of them are trying to maintain their dividend. One has cut their dividend. So if we look forward, let me just point to three things. One, there's going to be a big oversupply of inventories that will have to be reached off, reached, worked out, which will be overhang the price. Secondly, there's a very interesting question. If we've had these big cuts in investment, what does it mean for supply two or three years from now when hopefully we have a growing world economy? And thirdly, it's no longer OPEC and non-OPEC. Now it's the big three. It's Russia, the United States, and uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, they're calling their shots, and whatever they do, one way or the other, will, be the, uh, will really do much to shape what the oil market looks like in the uh, years ahead. So, Larry, back to you. Dan, that was great. Thank you. Um, you know, one of the things you mentioned was that there's a 97% reduction in airlines, um, and that means that when the refiners finish, they're going to have a plenty of jet fuel with, uh, with nothing to use it for. Um, is it difficult to store that, the jet fuel, because it's the most valuable component that will be easy to store? But do you well, see a particular distortion of jet fuel? I think, well, it actually creates a problem for refiners because you're producing a bunch of, a bunch of different products. Uh, you can use, I mean, it's sort of, you know, it's, it's comparable to diesel uh, or, you know, mid-grade, but it is a real problem for refiners how to operate. And, you know, as our previous speaker said, the other issue, these companies are also dealing, have to deal with employees uh, getting sick and, and how you have red teams and blue teams. But I think we're, you know, we're seeing definitely refiners cutting back on, on output. Dan, thank you. Uh, to my other speakers, uh, just a reminder to put your phones on mute when you're not speaking. Um, uh, our next speaker is Mark Gunnett. Okay. Um, Mark is the president of Hunt Oil. Um, go ahead, Mark. Hi, thank you. So, uh, just for everyone's background, we are a private uh, 85-year-old company based in Dallas, Texas. Um, so I'm going to speak about three things uh, very quickly. Uh, the first, to just follow up a little bit on what Dan was saying about a negative WTI. The way most oil and gas companies uh, are paid for their production is you are paid on a 30-day average uh, of monthly prices. And so last week when prices were negative $40, very few companies were actually paying someone $40 to take a barrel of oil from them. Uh, instead, that negative $40 would be obviously included in the monthly average uh, on which they were, were, were paid. What was happening is that people who were trading in futures contracts on the cloud exchanges were paying somebody $40 to take that contract off of their hands. Um, and so that's just the beginning of, of, of the price on which we're paid. Commodity prices, the futures prices are, are set for delivery of oil at a particular location. You have to pay to get the oil to that location, as well as obviously pay your variable cost. And so when you have prices in the tens or twenties or even thirties, when you take that all the way back to the wellhead, even the most profitable wells are making only a few dollars of, of, of profit uh, per barrel. And that same calculation 
goes into storage costs, as Dan was talking about. You have to obviously get the oil to the place where it would be stored, whether that's uh, you know, tankers off the coast of Long Beach or, or, or elsewhere. And so what you will start seeing is people making individual uh, decisions in their portfolio about whether or not to pay for that storage or to, to shut in wells. Let me just give you a small example of the way we will be looking at that in our North Dakota operations. That's a mature field, uh, and so we have a lot of facilities that are that were designed to handle wells producing maybe a thousand barrels a day. They may now only be producing 50 to 100 barrels a day, and so there's large amounts of storage in, in tanks and other production batteries uh, on our uh, locations where we can produce oil at a much lower rate uh, throughout the course of the month of May and then decide at the end of May, based on the average price we would expect to receive, whether or not to sell that oil or to shut in the wells. I think we'll probably do that for about 70% of our North Dakota uh, wells in the month of May. Another 10% will shut in because they're not economic unless you get into the mid-20s, and then the remainder will kind of be on a case-by-case basis. They may be economic still, but we may choose not to sell them. Uh, at these prices. And so when you look at storage, you know, in curtailment, you really have to avoid making uh, kind of large generalizations or, in my opinion, large policy decisions uh, about, you know, across-the-board cuts because I think each producer uh, will make the economically rational decisions to curtail production Production that's not possible. Another question was about shutting in unconventional wells. This is not a technical answer, but a rule of thumb description. Uh, unconventional wells are wells that need help to produce. They don't flow naturally on their own. That's where fracking comes from, because you, you inject large amounts of sand and water to break the rock and cause the oil to flow. It still doesn't flow on its own for very long, and so it, has, it needs some help, a mechanical pump or some other uh, activity to cause it to, uh, to continue to pump oil. What that means is it's actually very easy and inexpensive to shut off. You, t- you uh, turn off the pump, you close the valve, the well shuts in. When you're ready to bring it back online, uh, you turn the pump back on, open the valves, the well starts producing again. And we do this all the time uh, on a daily basis, actually, in the course of operating our business. Whether from Mark, we hear activities. that if you shut one of these fracking sites down, it's, it's very expensive to reopen. Is that not true? That is not true. Uh, it is, it is, as a general rule, would be think of it as being more expensive to, to shut in a conventional well only because they tend to be larger facilities in the U.S. today. They're, think of them as your, you know, your, your mega offshore projects. And because they flow naturally on their own, if you don't shut them in properly, then you can have you know, blowouts, think Macondo and things like that. There's a lot of pressure underneath. And so that the the, the cost and safety associated with shutting in a, a well that's naturally flowing is actually more difficult than one uh, that requires a pump. Um, natural gas prices have started to go up in this mess. Um, one of the reasons that natural gas is a, a byproduct of some of the oil that you produce, it's going to get shut down. Any thoughts on natural gas? I mean, I think the idea is that there's so much natural gas that's a waste product from the production in West Texas that there will be lesser uh, volume on the market. That's pro- and that you know that's probably true, uh, but you still have to have uh, demand. I don't I don't think Dan would actually be able to speak to this much more, uh, much better than I could. Uh, but I I I don't see 
uh, natural gas prices, you know, moving a whole lot over that, that medium term. Okay, thank you, Mark. Um, our next speech speaker is Jordan Shiner. Jordan uh, is camp director and owner of Camp Horseshoe in Rhinelander, Wisconsin, where my son has been a camper. Go ahead, Jordan. Thank you, Larry. So I'm going to pivot just really quickly on something that Crane was discussing just in general, which is just baseball, or we want to look at it in a bigger way, entertainment. So if you know about the Great Depression, there's been some comparisons to what's going on now, and there was an idea called escapism, this idea of how we can get away from the dreariness and the depression and the poverty and sports and entertainment and movies were all part of that. Camp could possibly fill part of that role. I'm going to start by really just asking this question. Why are summer camps more important now than ever? One, camps have a little bit of history. If Camps are, you know, over 100 years old is the initial founding of camps, and a lot of them came out of the Lower East Side of New York, the West Side of Chicago, and a, a way to get kids out of some of these areas that weren't healthy. They were almost created as a safe haven. In the 30s and 40s, there were people that um, – the polio scare actually sent kids away to camp. So that that's part of that. But to look really maybe on, on a bigger level, I'm going to start by saying there needs to be some sense of return to normalcy. Um, the kids and parents were incredibly ungrounded right now. Is there a way to, to reground us? Camp would be a great place to start that. Um, kids are used to going there and they gain independence and leadership and resiliency a development of a community, and that's what we would hope we would be able to give to these kids and parents that need this so badly. Um, also, just the idea of a place to heal, that there's a need right now, I think, for you know a term I'll say is I'll call emotional restoration, this idea of, of bringing kids back to some, again, normal kind of an environment for them. Um, just the idea to give people some joy and some hope in the midst of all this, get them away from the screens of the, the teaching that they're doing with e-learning to get away from the TV screen, to be outside. Um, the idea of reconnecting with mentors, these young teenage counselors or low t- or young 20 year olds, as well as friends. Um, just, I, I think maybe surprising to some of these guys, the camping industry last summer was an $18 billion industry. So to get away from this idea of not only what we'll do for the parents and the kids of why camp's important, but we're talking about small businesses around the country. Thousands and thousands of people are supported by camps. Um, again, an $18 billion industry. That being said, this idea of um, supporting small towns, the food we buy, and so forth. Uh, I'll transition and try to move there. Um, are kids going to be able to go to camp this summer? It's an incredibly fluid situation. The CDC, uh, about a week and a half ago, changed course and decided to take a team of doctors that were working on reopening schools, transfer them to summer camps, knowing the importance of it. This coming week, we are supposed to get from both the CDC and our governing body called the American Camp Association um, an original set of guidelines. We know that will change, but we're going to supposedly get this first idea of what we can do to reopen Lots of questions. Everybody knows about the testing. Can we create a a safe baseline by bringing our staff in early and about 20 days before is one of my plans, have our staff there? Could we do the testing to know who has had the antibodies, who has not? Try to get a safe baseline of staff, um, then bring the kids in. Obviously, the testing as they come in, 
We already have a plan being put in place. If we had to isolate kids, a separate building, what the process would be to, if they had to be, you know, sent home and so forth. Um, you know, obviously we want kids to come and be safe. This is one of those situations we couldn't guarantee that. So the parents would have to have some trust in what we do. Um, you know, kind of a, a uh, final question, how can we make it safe? I kind of combine that, and, and I would say, again, it's going to be um, really from the guidelines that we do. I mean, I have plans on how we would deliver food in safely. Campers wouldn't take days off, off of camp, which is something they, you know, always do. Um, you know, we probably cut off, cut off any of the trips we would go to. So at the end of the day, a fluid situation, I will say this, I think will be important to restore some of, you know, for the, the society, for kids and parents to be able to open up camps, and I hope we are able to do that. Great. Thank you, Jordan. Um, okay. Our next speaker is John Lipsky. Uh, John was uh, former chief economist at Somm Brothers, where I used to work, and got to know John. Uh, he was also managing director of the IMF. John, go ahead. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Larry. Thanks for the invitation. Okay, your questions. Any, uh, as you probably all know, that uh, G7 finance ministers, the G20 finance ministers, and the IMF spring meeting that took place a week, be uh, week before last. Question, any progress on the IMF's plans to help the emerging market countries? Uh, let me just start with a contrast with what was done in the wake of the global financial crisis with what's been done now. For the April, two the April 2009 London G20 Leaders Summit, there was agreement on providing a total of $1 trillion in new resources to the IMF and other uh, multi and the, and the multilateral development banks. Uh, there was a unique uh, agreement or an agreement on a unique $250 billion uh, SDR, uh, special drawing right allocation of new SDRs that provided uh, new funds to the, uh, to the IMF membership, but was useful for the low income countries. It created a brand new facility called the Flexible Credit Line that uh, uh, provided a very uh, a standby facility, excuse me, precautionary uh, facilities that was used right away by Mexico and Colombia successfully in staving off crisis. And there was an agreement on providing zero interest rate loans for low income countries. Okay, let's contrast with what was decided at this time around. Uh, no new regular resources for the IMF or any of the, of the uh, MDBs, the multilateral development banks. There was an agreement by the fund itself to increase the borrowing limits on two pre-existing facilities, a rapid financing instrument for advanced and emerging economies and a rapid credit facility for low-income countries. It went from a 50% of quota on a single drawing to 100% of quota. That's not nothing. But the overall borrowing limits weren't changed and the terms weren't changed. They did create a new facility, a swap-like facility, but the limitations on its use, uh, it's a platinum card facility that sort of tucks in under the pre-existing uh, flexible credit line for you uh, connoisseurs. I don't think it'll ever be used. The only thing that was new is the pre-existing uh, 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 trust funds, two trust funds uh, that exist to subsidize borrowings from the IMF by low-income countries. In other words, you might think of these, the IDA, L, the, uh, those that are eligible to borrow from the World Bank's International Development Association. In other words, the poorest, 76 poorest countries on earth. Uh, these are the, uh, the Poverty Reduction and Growth Trust and the new catastro ca ca excuse me, 
Catastrophe Containment and Relief Trust. But no actual new funds were provided. It was just endorsed that folks donate. And uh, uh, Secretary Mnuchin said that the, IM, the U.S. was considering such a thing. So is, uh, is there U.S. interest in helping out here? And the answer is absolutely nothing like there was in 2008 and 2009. Uh, the most, uh, I suppose the most important is the... Um, the endorsement or the apparent endorsement through the G20 ministers of an earlier IMF World Bank call for a debt service moratorium through the end of the year on the debts to the IMF and World Bank and other multilateral development banks by the low-income countries and echoed by a call by the Institute for International Finance, an unprecedented call on private lenders around the world to also follow suit with a debt service moratorium. Um, Anything beyond that? Well, what the U.S. mainly did was once again uh, was done by the Fed when they issued swap lines to 14 countries, uh, including four emerging market countries. I call these the favored friends of the Fed, the FF, the Triple F Club. Uh, but it's only the Fed board that knows in advance who's a member of the club, and the criteria are also known only to the Fed board in advance. The emerging market countries who are in the FFF club so far, Brazil, Mexico, Korea, and Singapore. Next question, China, where do they, uh, where do they fit? And I think this is uh, pretty interesting. If there's something particularly interesting, uh, it is uh, in two aspects of what happened in the last couple of weeks. Number one, the uh, wasn't much remarked on, but the uh, G20 ministers uh, pushed back the date for the next IMF quota adjustment to 2023. This is an adjustment that was an initially supposed when it was agreed at the 2010 Seoul G20 summit was supposed to be completed by October 2012. And what's important about it is this: it's it's absolutely clear. Right now, the U.S. has the biggest quota. Number two is Japan and three is China. They insisted in 2010 at Seoul that they did not want to be number two at the time, but it's clear that the next time around they're going to become number two, and of course there are non-trivial implications. But the most important thing this time around, uh, by now the largest single lender to the low-income countries is China, and heretofore their position has been our, the, the amount of loans, the terms of the loans to these countries is a sovereign issue. It's none of anybody else's business. And when it comes to the need for debt restructuring for these countries, that happens for everybody else through the so-called Paris Club, and where the idea is transparency of debt lending and pari passu equal terms when restructuring is necessary. Uh, this was all heretofore China is not a member of the of the Paris Club, and as I said, their attitude on restructuring is we do it bilaterally, and it's none of the terms are none of your business. And the G20 ministers agreed in supporting the debt service moratorium uh, on transparency and pari passu terms on those equal terms. What remains to be seen? Does this mean that since China is a G20 member, are they willing to sign up? for the rules of every of the big boy and girl club, of the Paris club, 
and start adopting transparency and peripasu terms in an environment in which they are now the biggest lender. I think this is extremely, uh, extremely important. The, John, uh, actually, the we're out of time. I'll come back to China in the Q&A section with you in a minute. Okay. Um, our next Thanks, speaker sir. is, uh, of course, our next speaker is uh, Eric Kleinenberg. Uh, Eric is a professor of sociology at NYU. He's written two books that I think are very topical to what's going on right now. One is called Heat Wave, about the Chicago Heat Wave, and the other is Going Solo, about living alone. Eric, are you with us? I'm here, ready, and I've got to tell you, I'm so pleased to uh, learn so much on this call. The two things that matter to me most in terms of my quality of life this summer are whether my daughter gets to go to camp and whether the Cubs play baseball. So I'm going to leave this call feeling optimistic no matter what. Um, you asked me three questions, and the first is, uh, what, if any, lessons are there from the heat wave in Chicago that we can apply to this? There are a couple things I want to hit on here. The first is that in the coronavirus, as in the heat wave, as in so many other uh, extreme events, our, our failure to take uh, early warnings seriously and to rely on the best science available to guide policy uh, can really hurt us. So in, in heat waves, typically, uh, local leaders fail to respond in the way that you do when there's a hurricane that's approaching a city. You can actually visualize a heat wave and a dangerous heat wave moving in on a, on a city in the same way that you do with a hurricane with color-coded maps on television. And people don't generally know that in the United States, heat kills more people than all the other kind of so-called natural disasters combined. So there's some real reason to do that. Uh, Chicago failed in 1995. The, the result was catastrophic. The United States obviously failed to do that uh, with the coronavirus, and we're all paying a heavy price for it. The other lesson I think is a little bit more interesting, uh, and that is that in, in the heat wave in Chicago, you know, what really killed people in the end was social isolation. Uh, because w when there's a heat wave, it, all you need to do to keep someone alive is get them cooled down uh, early enough, and that can be through you know, getting them into cool water or getting them into air conditioning. And in 1995, there was lots of cool water in Chicago. And there was even, you know, enough air conditioning for people who really needed it. Uh, but what, what killed people in Chicago was the lack of social connections, the, the lack of social support. So many people were living alone and were truly isolated uh, that they wound up being overwhelmed and unable to, to help themselves. No one came to knock on their door and do it for them. And the reason I, I point that out here is because very early on in this crisis, uh, the WHO and then U.S. Uh, health bodies and others around the world uh, told us that the way that we needed to survive the pandemic was by social distancing. And that concept has been very popular and prominent uh, over the last several weeks. Unfortunately, I think social distancing is a, is a horrible idea uh, because what we really need to stay alive and to keep the transmission of this virus down is physical distancing. Physical distancing, after all, is, is what keeps uh, the virus from spreading from one person to another. It has nothing to do with how socially connected we are to, to one another. And I, and I make that distinction because social distancing implies that if we hunker down and turn our backs on the rest of the world, we get through this thing. Uh, I don't think that's quite right. I think inevitably, uh, a lot of people are going to get exposed to the virus and there'll be a, a lot of pain, a lot of illness, a lot of death. The only way we really get through it is if we build a kind of social solidarity that in this country, at least, we've really lacked. Uh, and, and so I think the social distancing message 
is, is a mistake. There are all kinds of things that uh, individuals and that communities, that states, that nations can do to build solidarity that involves kind of looking after the, the, the most vulnerable people. Uh, and I fear that the social distancing concept uh, has made it hard for us to see those things. The next thing you asked about is uh, different subgroups that have uh, the most vulnerability. And in this case, you know, you're all following the news. So, you, you know, you know that in the United States, it's very clear that poor and working class communities that also tend to be you know, African-American or Latino uh, are having the, the worst experience of the this big cluster of cases uh, in New York or, you know, in, in central Queens and Brooklyn and the Bronx uh, in, in Midwestern cities. Uh, it's l largely African-Americans who are having high uh, incidence and also higher mortality. And uh, Larry, in your question, you know, you, you make a, a good point that it's not like you can have an emergency public health response and, and suddenly take care of this uh, because some of the reasons that you have this uh, high incidence and high mortality are structural. And, you know, in, in fact, that was the case in the heat wave in Chicago, too. Uh, extreme events, you know, from a sociologist perspective are important because they draw on everyday conditions. They actually, they're a little bit for a sociologist like a particle accelerator is for a physicist. They speed things up so you can see them. You can see things that aren't typically uh, perceptible. Uh, and, and then you can, you can really recognize the kind of impact they have. So take, for instance, the situation uh, in New York right now. We, or this is true in the Midwest as well. Uh, the populations that are really hit hard have uh, a real difficulty sheltering in place, staying at home, uh, stocking up, finding private space, right? They're, they're, they're communities where there are a lot of people uh, who are living paycheck to paycheck. So if they, if they, either they're doing what we now call essential work or they have to get to work because it's the only way they're going to get money to feed themselves and their families. Uh, they're, they're very likely to live in uh, crowded housing units. So, you know, multifamily housing, uh, where even if uh, you personally can stay home, there are other people who are going out uh, and your risk of exposure is higher. Uh, you're more likely to still be using public transit because you need that to get to work. And as you know from following the story in New York, that public transit has been very crowded. Uh, and you're also, and this is really important, least likely to have good access to health care on a routine basis. So we're now talking a lot about these underlying conditions that make some people so much more vulnerable than others. Well, there are a lot of people potentially in the United States who would have more severe underlying conditions, but they have you know, regular uh, access to very good health care, and they're able to get those underlying conditions under control so that in this moment, uh, they're in much better shape. But obviously, there are millions of people in the United States who just don't have access to, to regular and high-quality health care, nor do they have access to the best kind of care during this crisis. So, if it, you know, you can see the disparity between the public hospitals all over the country uh, and the, and the uh, kind of private nonprofit hospitals that, are, that tend to be faring much better and having an easier time getting resources they need. So um, I think the only way you get at the acute is, the, is to deal with the crisis. Thanks, Eric. I'll come back to the final question in Q&A. Our next speaker is Dr. Indrapal Ranhawa. He comes to us from California. He is an adult and pediatric pulmonologist and immunologist. He also works in organ, organ transplantation. He's a research scientist, and he runs a, a doctor's office, and that's where the nature of our question is going to go today. Go ahead, please. Thank you, Larry. I appreciate the opportunity to speak today. I would like to proceed my, my points by saying that 
Uh, I have a unique background that allowed me to, I'd say, see the threat of this virus relatively early, even as early as uh, the, the first week of February, and allowed me to take the opportunity to to tackle what would be, uh, I'd say, a, a massive hurdle for our organization. So I've built um, a very large uh, translational science facility uh, that manages over 10,000 patients who have uh, life-threatening diseases, our main disease being food anaphylaxis. Over 40% of them fly from other states and other countries, uh, and it's the largest uh, unit of its kind in the world. So by early February, I knew that we had a serious problem at hand uh, in that I knew patients, should they stop their actual form of immunotherapy, uh, which is largely based on uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning platforms that we've been building for over a decade, uh, that their disease state could recur and they could be at a, in, in a serious uh, state of harm. I also knew that people would have no confidence to fly or no confidence to come in given the actual virus itself. So starting in the first week of March, I used my, my applied mathematics background and my, obviously my, my, my scientific and medical background to start to put out a real clear timeline of what could happen next. And over the next number of weeks, this kind of six-month timeline really allowed our organization to uh, have a sense of focus. It allowed our employees to know where the organization was heading. And by March, our 150-plus employees knew that they would not be let go or be furloughed. I also knew that our next phase would have to directly attack COVID itself. Uh, and that meant we had to take the risk of not only COVID-19, but any other infectious disease and really kind of limit its ability to have a presence in our multiple medical facilities. So what I did is I deployed a robust infectious disease awareness platform. So this platform involved creating the most essentially COVID-free risk zone for our staff, uh, our employees, and our patients. And the platform required rapidly developing software to track the screening of every patient and employee who entered the organization. It also required deploying the testing of COVID and other viruses on site. And it required developing novel HR policies, which allowed at-risk employees to be tested and, if positive, home quarantined, continuing to allow it to be worked virtually from home. It also, requests, it also required the changing the physical environment of our multiple facilities, including adding laminar airflow registers, UVC light decontamination, custodial decontaminations with multiple new agents, mandatory hand washing and monitoring systems for all employees, uh, physical distancing measures in the workplace, and much, much more. In the end, I wanted to hold our organization accountable to our employees and or over 10,000 um, uh, patients with two very clear outcomes. Outcome number one had to be number of either patients or employees who test positive for this virus. And number two, the number of microbiology samples, which are taken from all types of building surfaces from our facilities to see how many of them actually test positive for coronavirus and, of course, other microbes as well. So what was the result of this aggressive campaign for a mid-sized organization? Well, so far, it's been very positive. We have not let go of a single employee. We have about 100% patient retention and hundreds of patients are flying in, even right now, they're flying in this month to keep their children's appointments. And in addition, we are looking at likely being back at normal capacity next month in the midst of the worst economic crisis of our lifetimes. So I'd say the message around COVID-19, at least from my background, my experience, is that we are typically talking about this as either an economic crisis or a disease crisis. We rarely integrate the two. And I believe that at least my approach and our organization's approach lets you see that it's possible to reduce or remove COVID risk in the workplace. And what that does is it allows employee and particularly consumer confidence to come back and prevail.
And I'd like to answer, I think I answered most of my questions, but I'll answer the last question, which is asking about asymptomatic uh, cases in New York. Whether you look at rhinovirus, enterovirus, or other common viruses, it's very common to see people who shed viruses on a regular basis. It is imperative that we test not only active patients who have fevers and symptoms, we have to test large swaths of individuals to know what the true shedding risk is. Once we have that type of information handy, then data tracking and the AI behind that becomes much, much more useful. Thank you, Larry. Thank you. Um, Our next speaker is Dr. Cyril Wecht. Um, I was a college fraternity brother of his son, Benji. Uh, That is not why Cyril Wecht is known. He is our most famous forensic pathologist in the United States. He also serves as the Allegheny County Coroner. Uh, He's authored 16 books, and one of them uh, he spoke to our book club in New York. Uh, Go ahead, Cyril. Uh, Larry, thank you for having invited me. It's a great honor to be on with so many distinguished uh, people. Um, You have asked several questions, so let me just start with the questions and then make some comments of a personal observation and some experiences that I have had. With regard to uh, pathology and the contribution made by pathologists, Obviously, it's basic, as all of the physicians and other scientists know so well. It's just that we come to know it a day too late. But um, going back to 1918 and the Spanish flu, Spanish flu, the pathologists, just as today, study these cases in autopsies, and basically, you know, the techniques of an autopsy remain the same. The uh, great advancements that have been made in the area of radiology, scanning, and DNA, et cetera, like that, uh, those things really don't have any direct application. It's been a basic matter of autopsy, gross microscopic examination, and some special stains, uh, et cetera. As far as what we can learn about uh, treatment or prevention, again, it goes back to the same thing. What the pathologist learns is uh, to apply that gross and microscopic examination plus any special studies. It might have been uh, immunological, bacteriological, uh, toxicological results, etc. Then we correlate that uh, with the clinical information and we put together then the answers. This uh, CPC, clinical pathological correlation, is basic, as all the physicians know, for medical students and residents where that kind of academic approach is taken. There is no difference, as far as I know, with regard to the way in which this is being pursued in other countries. I've had the opportunity to get the first-hand information about China because one of my very close personal friends and respected colleagues is Dr. Henry Lee, the renowned criminalist. He and his wife both have families still in China, so they're in constant touch. And uh, they're dealing with it the same way that we are, basically, and there are no differences in so far as pathological findings and clinical applications are concerned that uh, I am aware of. With regard to uh, how uh, it's killing people, um, what we are seeing is indeed something different. We're seeing, and I have quite a lot of photomicrographs that I have now accumulated, uh, are changes uh, that are different from what we see microscopically with viral or bacterial pneumonias. What's happening is that this particular virus coming in down through the nasotracheal or oropharyngeal area into the respiratory tract uh, leading to inflammation produces an outpouring of a cell in the body known as a cytokine. And there's an outpouring of these cytokines which uh, 
while fighting inflammation do damage, ironically, because they result in the uh, damaged cells being sloughed off and uh, accumulating in the alveolar sacs, the air sacs. The um, alveolar capillaries, the walls of these tiny air sacs, of course, is where the oxygen and carbon dioxide uh, exchange is made. And when that wall is damaged, then uh, things are markedly compromised. In addition, we're seeing a kind of an almost hyaline membrane. It's it's almost like a, a little film of tissue. Um, in addition to the sloughed damaged cells and the usual chronic white blood cells, the inflammatory cells in these areas, these these are resulting in the inability of people to be able to get their oxygen even though they're placed on a ventilator. And what is happening now, leading into your next question about kidneys, is that um, we're learning that the coronavirus can attack directly, uh, not only through the nasotracheal pulmonary system, but apparently is uh, affecting, in some instances, the heart. And now the kidneys, and I just got a recent report in yesterday about the eyes. Uh, so uh, this coronavirus, the contagiousness of it is fantastic, and it's able to produce damage, we're finding, to other organs also. Um, the um, use of the ventilators, the acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS, um, helps in many cases, and in other instances, it just uh, is is not helping. I, I want to say this, that as uh, far as what we know, and the previous speaker referring to cases in early February, that uh, we're now learning the cases have been around, and as the denominator increases, and it is uh, doing so markedly, uh, I believe that the mortality rate is going to be significantly less than what had predicted. We already know from Dr. Fauci that 100,000, 200,000 prediction was way off. We're not even uh, yet to 60,000. I want to say just uh, in a personal way, I've been to this Wuhan market with three of my children. I had an international conference, medical, legal, forensic, scientific conference. Uh, we went down the Yangtze River on riverboat, finished in Wuhan, went to that. I have seen these stacks of wild animals, pangolins, uh, never even seen one or heard of one until I saw it there, and other animals stacked one on top of the other, and the excrement from one cage pouring down uh, into the other, uh, etc. These uh, zoonotic viruses we've had to deal with before with SARS and MERS. And in past years, as we'll all remember, we had polio and we had tuberculosis and we had HIV and then we had Ebola and Zika and the various influenzas. So I do believe, as has been commented upon before with the distancing and so on, I do believe that the kinds of restrictions that have been imposed on society, the damage to society, and always the closing down of the worlds of academia, uh, uh, marked, uh, marked reduction of legal processes, uh, marked impingement upon the medical services uh, for people, uh, the mm, terrible uh, 
matters involving domestic situations with abusive men. Can you imagine a woman and children living with somebody like that for all of these weeks in a cloistered environment? Uh, and not to mention the financial picture, people not being able to go to church, synagogue, and mosque, and so on. I think that we need more focused attention of the more calm, reasonable nature. And the, another comment I just want to make is I do believe that this has become a political matter. And even though I am a lifelong Democrat and very active with the Democratic Party, and I'm very much anti-Trump, I believe that maybe to some extent subconsciously, if not uh, knowingly, uh, some of the Democratic politicians are uh, coming on strong, the governors and senators, with these restrictive policies because they want to keep just pounding Trump into the ground. Well, I'm all in favor of pounding Trump into the ground, but not at, not at the expense of what is uh, proper and normal, and we are destroying civilization. It is not sustainable. Uh, read an excellent column in the Wall Street Journal on Saturday, an op-ed piece. Read another fine column by Brett Stevens in the New York Times about what is necessary and uh, required for New York City. It should not necessarily be imposed upon the rest of the world. So those are just a couple of observations I wanted Thank to make. Thank you, <laughs> Great. Um, our next speaker is David Salzberg. Uh, David is a retired physician. Uh, statistician from Pfizer. Uh, David spoke to our book club about his book entitled Lady Tasting Tea. He has a new book out called Errors, Blunders, and Lies and How to Tell the Difference. Go ahead, David. Thank you, Larry. Uh, a pandemic is raging. Patients arrive in the emergency room barely able to breathe, their blood oxygen levels plunging. In spite of the best efforts of the medical staff, the death rate is running above 6%. Suppose one of the MDs recalls that there is a peculiar pharmacological effect of drug X that might be useful here. How could we determine if drug X is useful? Well, the gold standard for finding out if a drug X works is two or more double-blind, randomized clinical trials of adequate size. But it will take months to develop a proper protocol and to identify appropriate patient characteristics and even longer to recruit the hundreds of patients who would be needed to get adequate statistical power. Patients are dying now. Isn't there some, something other than the gold standard? Is there a silver standard? Is there a lead standard? Is there even a wooden standard? 1952, William Cochran, the chairman of the statistics department at Johns Hopkins, faced a similar situation. The Baltimore Housing Authority was about to open a new block of subsidized housing, but it had been noticed that many families broke up soon after moving from their old slum dwelling into new housing. The, 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 uh, uh, the Housing Authority had developed a method for measuring family cohesiveness. They came to Cochrane and asked if they could use that measurement to determine if moving into new housing decreased family cohesiveness. They could not assign new homes at random, though, because they had promised that the homes would be rented out on a first-come, first-served basis. If they did that, however, the families that moved into new housing would tend to be more aggressive and have more incentive than those who were signed up late or not at all, and they would not be comparable. Cochran suggested what he called an observational study. Pick a group of families that were moved and a group that were not, and measure the change in family cohesiveness. Then using statistical regression, develop a formula that predicts changes in that measure using all the baseline data they have on each family, except whether the family moved or not. 
predict the change expected based upon these baseline characteristics for each family and look at the difference between the predicted and the observed change in cohesiveness in each family and see if that difference differs between the two groups. He called this an observational study. The phrase observational study has been badly misused in the medical literature and is often used to describe nothing more than the usual collection of case histories. But when Cochrane's method has been properly applied in medicine, it has produced some very useful results. In spite of the misuse in medical journals, the observational study has been effectively used in many fields. A new journal entitled Observational Studies and begun in 2015 has provided examples of its use in sociology, economics, epidemiology, and other fields. Cochrane's approach to observational studies has been used to examine the value of seatbelts in automobiles, the relationship between smoking and health, the dangers associated with the anesthetic agent halothane, and the effects of chewing on cocoa leaves among Indians in Peru. As far as the COVID virus is concerned, preliminary results of the VA study released last week seems to show that patients, more patients died when treated with a chloroquine drug than those who were untreated. But we don't know if the patients who were treated with the drug were more seriously ill to begin with or how they might differ in other essential ways. Cochrane has shown us that even in the midst of a raging pandemic, careful, scientifically useful studies can be mounted. Running a properly randomized study complete with appropriate patient consent requires more than just the random assignment of patients. It takes a staff well-trained in running double-blind studies. You cannot depend upon untrained interns or nurses or medical students to take care of the details. However, if, you need, if all you need to run a Cochrane observational study is the adequate collection of baseline values, most of which will be collected on the patient record in the normal course of medical practice. It may take a little statistical manipulation to identify those baseline variables that are most predictive of outcome, and there will always be somebody in academia who will point out that some tit was not followed by the appropriate tittle. But at least we know if the peculiar pharmacological aspects of drug X should be followed up. And you had some questions for me. David, I guess I'll, I'll ask one. I, I guess what I think you're saying is what Cochrane's methods would be is that when... Um, Two patients come in that are of similar uh, age, uh, morbidity, um, and level of what we call it virus sickness. That um, you split those two into uh, called control, you know, A and B, or or A and not A. And then um, because we're throwing the kitchen sink at these people in terms of a variety of treatments at the same time, you now have A and not A, and then you can vary randomly the other treatments B and C as well. And that from that, you can then tease the covariances and better understand whether A or not A works. Is that the essence of what Cochrane is suggesting? That, that's sort of the way, except uh, he's, he's not suggesting that you, you manipulate it at all. You don't intervene on the basis of trying to get a balance. You simply allow the physicians to follow their best medical judgment. And then when it's over with or when you finally get mortality values out of these, uh, you, you look and see what characteristics the patient brought in uh, were predictive of, of death or of survival. It's uh, the point is of, of Cochrane's thing is you don't attempt to assign things at random, but you just take things as they came and then adjust them. Uh, Donald Rubin up at Harvard developed a Bayesian uh, interpretation of this, in which he said 
you have two patients, one treated with A, one treated with B. Each patient has a potential response to both A and B. So you, you put into your formulas a dummy variable for the patient's A's response to B and patient B's response to A. And then you throw in some Bayesian priors and you work out the appropriate distribution of the best estimate of, of the probabilities. So it's been a fairly uh, highly developed procedure with, with a lot of mathematics. Okay, Dave, I'll come back to you in the Q&A. Uh, our last speaker okay. before the Q&A is Derek Lowe. Um, I found Derek Lowe uh, as a blogger on the pharmaceutical industry, and I read with fascination his comments about the pipeline coming up in the vaccine world. Go ahead, Derek. Great, thanks. Well, as you know, there are a lot of vaccines under development. Uh, it's hard to even count them all, but estimates range from 50 to over 100, although we're not sure about all of those programs. Every major vaccine technology that we know about, and a few that are just now being tried, is being rolled out, many of them by multiple players. And that's good because the hope is that the usual attrition in drug development and vaccine development will be balanced out by these number of projects. And with any luck, we're going to end up with a few that make it all the way through. But uh, we're just going to have to see over the next few months. The mRNA vaccine platform that Moderna has gotten a lot of attention with might be the fastest, but only if it works. And we do not know if that works to provide a usable human vaccine for anything yet. So that's going to be sort of a death or glory attempt. It's either going to be an amazing thing that comes through, or we're going to find out things about mRNA vaccines that we didn't know. The race is not always to the swift, nor the battle to the strong. The first non-new technology that's coming up is an adenovirus vector vaccine. CanSino in China is uh, taking an AD5-based vaccine in. That's an established technology, but those kinds of vaccines can have trouble with patients who have an immune response to the vaccine vector, which is not what you want. So it's going to be very hard to say what comes out of this or how quickly it comes out. The trials for these are going to be multi-center. They're going to be all over the place, all over the world, and basically wherever the patients are. So we're going to have to keep a close eye as we go on through the summer where the largest number of patients can be enrolled because we're rapidly going to go through the phase one safety trials in volunteers who don't have any symptoms. We're going to be going into at-risk people very quickly at-risk populations and seeing if there's a protective effect. Now, the earliest you could expect anything to come out of this, and this is being extremely optimistic, the earliest you could expect something like an early, an, er, an emergency use authorization by the FDA for a vaccine would be, I hate to say this, but probably after the first of the year. And it's not that I hate to say that because I think that's late. I hate to say that because that would break every speed record known for vaccine development. That will only happen if everything works perfectly the first time. And, of course, everything usually doesn't. As I say, we're hoping that a lot of different players are going to be in here and someone will come through. That sort of vaccine, though, is only going to be roughly tested for safety. There is simply no time to do the multiple overlapping, wide-ranging tests 
that a new vaccine usually gets. You should take a look at the kind of safety testing that, say, the rotavirus vaccine went through or the chicken pox or the shingles vaccine. There is no time for that unless you want to wait another four or five, six, eight years. So it's going to be interesting to watch. Whatever comes out on first is also going to be necessarily in a bit of short supply at first. So we're going to have to have some foresight and do some planning about how this is going to be rolled out and to whom. So the challenges are, does the vaccine work? Do you get enough immunity? And the bigger one is, can you deliver it via manufacturing? That's where Bill Gates comes in with his uh, effort to try to fund several different sorts of manufacturing facilities, which is an excellent idea. Some of the bigger players like Johnson & Johnson, Pfizer, uh, GSK, and Sanofi, they may be able to handle it mostly on their own. Some of them are already ramping up production facilities, building them out on a risk basis. They might be able to do it themselves if there's not any strange events along the way, but the Gates effort could be crucial if we have to go to a different technology or indeed if some of the big players need some extra help. As far as making money on this, no. J&J has already said, for example, that they're doing this on a not-for-profit basis. You can make money on vaccines, but this is not the time to be doing it. This whole effort is going to accelerate knowledge on vaccine production a lot, especially if we get into the new technologies. Unfortunately, that's not going to be as much help for influenza, HIV, etc., because those have significant problems of their own just related to the type of virus they are that the coronavirus doesn't share, which is actually good news. The big incentive here is to try to find something that will work to try to get the world back to normal. That's a big enough incentive there. There might be more than one vaccine getting through. In that case, it's going to be very hard to tell who should get what or which one's more effective in different populations. You should consider the polio vaccine story with the Salk and Sabin vaccines where it was unclear for a while which way to go on that. So we're going to have a lot of interesting reversals, a lot of high-profile failures and strange successes. There is absolutely no way to predict what's going to come out of it. But overall, I'm optimistic that we're going to get something. I just don't know when that's going to be. So that's my summary. Great, Derek. Uh, sorry, uh, we're now in the Q&A. We're officially in the Q&A period, and I'll start with you, Derek, as our first question. Um, you mentioned the role of the FDA. Um, can, do you imagine that other countries may follow a different path than the FDA in terms of when, how, and what in terms of the vaccines? Do you, do you think that... Uh, yeah. That's my first question. And second sure. one is, um, you know, we have these live versus uh, dead uh, vaccines as well. Um, I wonder if, if using a live vaccine might be easier and faster to develop. Okay. I'll take those on in that order. As far as the different regulatory agencies, it is possible because I believe that the Chinese government is very committed to trying to be the first to come up with a vaccine, for China to be the one that comes up with the vaccine and rolls it out to the world for obvious reasons. Other countries would like that, too, but I think the Chinese are putting a great deal of muscle behind that, and I would frankly expect the Chinese regulatory authorities to be pushing things through very quickly. Whether or not that's a good idea or the right decision is very much a separate topic. 
Second, as far as the live versus, say, uh, inactivated vaccines, you really the, the best way to think of it is there are two kinds of vaccine. One is where you give the body the protein antigen and let it develop immunity. The second is where you come in with something that can infect the cells, and then the cells make the protein antigen themselves. So the first one is, as you say, the, the, the killed-off vaccines and the like, or just giving a recombinant protein. The live stuff is either an attenuated virus, another viral vector, which is what several companies are doing right now, or the mRNA DNA vaccines also force the cells to make their own antigens. So that's the big split. Those latter ones tend to produce better immunity, but not always. It's going to have to be proven in the clinic. I was actually thinking that maybe we'll go in a couple different directions in the sense that we may get one vaccine now and then maybe vaccine in a year. Absolutely. Absolutely. One gives you temporary immunity, one gives you more of a permanent immunity. I think we're going to go with the first thing that looks like it helps and buy us some time, and then we'll have the luxury of figuring out exactly what the best one overall is. Great. Thank you, Derek. Uh, Next question is for Eric Kleinenberg. Eric, you wrote a book about going solo where you mentioned that um, individuals are more and more choosing to live a life alone and not to couple up. One of the implications right now is if you lived alone is that it's maybe particularly isolating. I wonder if you thought about whether or not um, isolation is highly problematic for those living alone. Yeah, it's a a big issue. Uh, People don't know this, but maybe the biggest demographic change of the last 60 years is that for the first time in the history of our species, enormous numbers of people uh, in affluent societies are living alone for long periods of time. It's really never happened before. Uh, there, there, there are many cities uh, and nations where, you know, somewhere between one third and one, you know, one, one half of all households are one person households. The United States, where about 30% of all households have just one person. And ordinarily, you know, I explained in my book, people who live alone tend to be quite social. They rely on uh, public spaces, uh, you know, parks, libraries, senior centers. They're more likely than the rest of, of the population to go to, uh, you know, uh, public events. They, they spend a lot of time with neighbors and friends. Now, suddenly, all those people who live alone are also extremely isolated. And in some ways, that might make them uh, more protected from the kind of acute risk of getting the virus. Uh, if they get the virus, they can be in very bad shape. But there's also this whole other wave of issues that we're going to have to confront, and that is that the severe social isolation that people are experiencing is in itself a major health hazard. So we know that lonely, you know, living alone, if you're social, can be okay. If you're isolated, it can lead to loneliness, uh, to depression, to anxiety, and each of those things exacerbates stress and other health problems. So I think there's a, a mental health crisis and a, and a social isolation crisis that might not be at the, at the forefront of everyone's minds right now, uh, but it's going to emerge in the coming months as a, as a serious issue. And then, of course, as we enter into the summer season with heat waves and the hurricane season, there's the compounding, the compounded issue of you know, what happens if we get extreme weather or when we get extreme weather and people are still trying to stay distant from each other. So there's big issues to address. Thank you, Eric. Uh, let me move on to Interpol next. Uh, I kind of view you as one of, um, one of the great optimists of what's happening right now in terms of death rates and in terms of spread. Um, why do you feel like you're much more optimistic than the, the typical um, 
the typical physician or a typical guy on TV screens are saying it, you know, it's the end of the world and you need to bunker down. Yeah, sure. I, I appreciate that. I've treated about 35 patients with coronavirus in ICU settings and even in outpatient settings. Um, I think it's relatively uh, based on my experience in the fact that I treat uh, both pediatric and adult patients with all kinds of lung diseases. We deal with viral pneumonitis, viral pneumonias without a, without a source uh, day in and day out at many hospitals across the globe. And we find strategies to uh, treat and stabilize those patients. I think the, the basic issue will come down to this. Once we have accurate uh, turnaround of testing, which can be done now, at least at our facility, in less than 24 hours, both antibody and PCR testing, this will force the hand of the development of outpatient active treatment of, of these individuals, which means if you can actually deal with that cytokine storm that was alluded to earlier, if we can actually track these patients very early, you will not see these patients decline. Uh, again, I've had the experience of at least treating three dozen uh, plus of these patients uh, in real time, and I've seen that. Um, so I, I'm, I am optimistic because I think uh, these series of steps will take place, and uh, you know, obviously we'll hope for a vaccine, and that will come. But I think uh, immediately we have opportunities to at least take 90% of the patients who become coronavirus positive and who are symptomatic, and we can find strategies utilizing what we know with the physiology of the disease when it hits the lung uh, to make sure that they don't have a sudden level of decline. And I believe that's, uh, that's the next step. Your general discussion was on how to open a doctor's office and run it effectively in these troubled times. We had two other speakers earlier talk about baseball and summer camp. Um, let's start with summer camp first. Do you think it is reasonable to develop a approach that would make it a safe environment uh, for kids to go to camp? Yes, and I think also with uh, schools as well. If you take the same model that we've deployed, I mean, granted, look, we're, we're unique. We have an opportunity to test people and get results back in a matter of minutes with some of the types of tests that we do. But if you took a modified version of that and you could create these safety mm -hmm. zones where you know that your, your chance of having an actual infected person in that zone, whether it's a school, whether it's a camp or an arena, if you could track that effectively based upon that model in that zone, it's going to require some, some software and some data analytics. You'll be able to give people a a significant degree of reassurance that if they shop at this mall, go to this school or whatnot, that consumer confidence comes back. What that also does is allows you to track data in large segments. And what's missing in this country right now is a, is a singular primary you know, governing organization that can actually track data. But if you can do this across the private sector, across multiple different organizations, that data should be open sourced and that should go to all public health facilities like it does with us. And once the public health departments have active data, now tracking becomes exceedingly easy. And that not only does that help with, with this current issue, it also helps with vaccines. Because if you need to know where to go trial these vaccines, having this data uh, makes it much, much easier. So you, do you think it's reasonable for, to open up an arena in this calendar year or not? I think it depends on how much guts uh, private sector folks have in spending, you know, spending the money to build these safety zones. It's worked for us uh, exceedingly well, and you know, I plan on, on trying to deploy at least the software that we had out to local police departments, fire departments, uh, you know, and, and at least some of the government sectors to see what kind of uh, what kind of tracking we get with that. 
But I think we have to move past this idea that, uh, you know, physical distancing and social distancing, you know, certainly it will help. But if you just look at what our fundamental therapy is here, we're basically telling people, go quarantine yourself or go end up in the ICU where you have a, you know, 50-50 chance of coming out of it. It doesn't make sense. So if you step that all the way back and you start with active active, uh, uh, testing where you can actually start options of treatment early, now you can reduce that risk of somebody ending up in the hospital-based setting. You've tracked your initial set of data, which now becomes public data. That feeds into multiple other levels of confidence where you can actually start to have larger events. Is it going to be 10,000 people in an arena? Obviously not this year. Uh, but I think, again, I think there's, there's other countries that are, that are moving way faster than us on this. Thank you. Um, my next question is for, uh, for, for David Salzberg. David, um, the most famous observational study was the 1964 smoking study uh, done by Cochrane. And what he did was he looked at um, expectations, for example, for British doctors, whether or not uh, how many of them should have had lung disease or coronary disease and died from those two diseases. And he found that 10 times as many um, doc- British doctors died from heart disease than expected. And although it wasn't a, you know, your gold standard study, it showed that it was likely that um, smoking may have had an effect on mortality, particularly with regard to lung disease. Is this the sort of process you're thinking about expectations of death rates for the COVID-19 virus? Uh, yes, it is. I, actually, I'm not aware of that particular study. The uh, ones I knew about were the ones done in England, uh, uh, again, on doctors, but uh, uh, based upon hospital records. Uh yeah, that, that's that's the sort of thing. That it was with smoking. Uh, it's a pretty clear result. In fact, the the second result, which people don't usually talk about, is there's a tremendous increase in the number of deaths from heart disease with people who smoke. But uh, the uh, that, that's the sort of thing you can accomplish with an observational study. Yes. And then how um, in that example we discovered that smoking uh, was deadly. Um, but how, in this case, would we conclude whether or not, for example, that that malaria drug was was positive or negative on number of days in the hospital or um, whether or not you got worse or whether or not you, you died? Can, you, can it do that? Yeah. I, I, well, the endpoint you look at, it, mathematically, it doesn't matter what endpoint you use, whether it's days in hospital or zero-one variable of, of, of live or not live. But uh, it... it the, the, the main problem is that often the more traumatic things like death are accompanied by a large amount of additional information, most of which is irrelevant to the question you have at hand. Okay, uh, a couple of questions now for Cyril. Cyril, um, you mentioned uh, in the pre-call that we're now discovering that a number of people that had died um, months ago may have died from uh, COVID-19. Can you describe how you found out and how you think it's going to affect the death statistics going forward? Yes, well, that was disclosed just several days ago, although some of the people may have known it longer. Uh, Santa Clara County uh, in California, uh, they said that they had some cases that had occurred back in early February, I think February 4, February 11, 13, prior to the first case that we thought had been reported in uh, Washington State. Uh, I was up there in Washington State in late February testifying in a very uh, 
major uh, case involving the deaths of two little children. Nobody ever told me a darn thing as I came into the Seattle airport and hung around and, and then testified in Tacoma and went back to the airport and testified the next day. So in any event, uh, these tests have been done by the Centers for Disease Control uh, on uh, tissues that have been <clears throat> preserved in formalin. It was surprising to me because up until then I did not know that the virus could be <clears throat> identified once it uh, had been placed. When we do an autopsy, like I did three just today, um, we take representative sections of all the organs and tissues that we have examined, and we weigh and measure and feel, et cetera, and then we take that which we need for microscopic slides, and we take representative sections and we place in formalin the universal fixative. So now, because of that discovery, people can go back, and this fits in with some of the other uh, uh, gentlemen have been mentioning here about diagnosis and treatment and developing uh, <clears throat> plans and so on. Uh, maybe we can learn more about, well, exactly how long has it been around and what did we miss and what could have been learned had we known about some of the early transmission. Um, so uh, that is uh, indeed uh, a very, very interesting uh, finding. And I, I look forward uh, to thinking and reviewing some of the cases that I have done. Uh, I, I want to make a point that a lot of people don't don't realize when they talk about autopsies and corona patients, um, a, 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 a confirmed COVID death, uh, technically speaking, is not really a coroner's case. Uh, if, if a doctor knows a diagnosis, just like he would say staphylococcal or pneumococcal pneumonia or bacterial meningitis or so on, and there's no nothing of a possible legal nature involved in trauma, nothing civil, nothing uh, criminal likely to happen, and so on. Um, you know, there aren't many offices, if indeed any, that will take that case in. Uh, it, it, and it's the same thing with corona. I just spoke with the medical examiner uh, down in San Antonio two days ago on another unrelated matter, and I asked her if they were doing COVID deaths, and she said, no, they are not. I myself have uh, had a few cases now where the bodies were thought possibly to be corona-infested, and swabs were made. We kept the bodies refrigerated, and then if they were negative, we went back into the autopsy. And if they're positive, then we did not, because where I do my autopsies for counties, several counties in southwestern Pennsylvania, as well as private autopsies for people from different parts of the country sending the bodies, uh, they don't want that um, facility contaminated. So uh, we're, we're going to be somewhat... Uh, somewhat hampered maybe in terms of autopsy findings uh, which are you know the final result uh, and and uh, but I, I think we'll we'll come to know enough that one of the other problems is biopsies you see they can do lung biopsies but we really would like to get bigger pieces of lungs rather than the <coughs> fine needle biopsies to be able to study these things. So there's a lot yet to be done and learned about uh, through the pathological um, investigative processes. Yeah, you mentioned the wet markets in Wuhan, Cyril. Yeah, <laughs> incredible. <laughs> and, Unbelievable. You know, there's, there's been you know two major rumors about how this disease developed. One is um, it was the wet markets, and one much more nefarious that it may have been either accidentally or purposely leaked out of the Wuhan uh -huh. lab. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is there anything, 
how would we as scientists uh, challenge one or the two hypotheses that it's either man, man-made or bat-made? Well, uh, only if the Chinese, of course, participate, and they uh, they will know. They probably already do know. I um, I recall uh, 27 of the first 41 people that came to be infected in China have been <clears throat> customers in that market. Uh, I'm aware that some allegations have been made that either uh, deliberately or more most likely accidentally uh, in a laboratory, which happens to be, by the way, not very far. I think it's just a matter of a couple of miles or something like that away from that, from that market area uh, that somehow the virus uh, escaped uh, while they were doing uh, some research studies or so on. I, I do not know uh, whether they'll really be able to determine that. I think uh, the Chinese uh, perhaps can determine it because they have all of the uh, data there, the demographics and, and so on, uh, whether they do know it, whether... Uh, but I, 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 I don't know. I, uh, it's possible that it, it, it came from the lab, but I, I kind of lean toward um, what had been thought that it came from the people in that market, uh, went on to the other and so on, and then transmitted by people obviously traveling then to Iran and Italy and Spain uh, and uh, the United States and then all over the world. Yeah, I'm not a conspiracy theorist myself, but you are actually more than I am, so to hear that you don't believe in it gives more credence to the bats. Um, moving on to John Lipsky. John, um, we started talking a little bit about the role of the Chinese in Paris Club. Um, I noticed over the years, as I go visit the IMF, usually semi-annually, uh, there's a greater and greater amount of Chinese staff uh, at the IMF. Um, where before, maybe 10, 15 years ago, it was very rare. Now they're at almost every meeting. And it seems in many ways that we've co-opted the Chinese to kind of join in into the IMF world. And I can also see now that they're enormous lenders to these African countries and some of these Asian countries, that they may want to figure out a way to get after they've made all these loans, they want to get paid back. And therefore, the IMF is a method to encourage um, their contracts. But you've also mentioned that the Chinese have mixed views because they want to, don't want to be transparent and want to take care of themselves. How do you think the Chinese will end up getting paid back? How will they use the IMF? And will they really be partners uh, with us in this, uh, in this regard? Well, that's, a, that's one of the $64 questions uh, in the air right now. As I say, the, uh, you can also take a look at the speech that David Malpass made, the president, new president of the World Bank, to the uh, what's called the Development Committee week before last, in which he went in some detail uh, calling for increased debt transparency, and there was no question about who he thought was the, should be the principal audience for his, uh, his remarks. Um, I think this is kind of a quiet test to see whether China is really willing to step up and accept the implications of its role. Is it willing now to be uh, much more of a member of the, as I call it, the big, or are they uh, instead? You. Oh, I'm sorry, am I back? Can you We're hear back. me? So the really big question, is, is China going to insist that it's gonna make its own rules for itself or is it going to accept the implications of its size and importance and uh, compromise with, the, with, let's call it, the rest of the, of the big boys club? 
and that's hanging in the air, and we're going to know very soon in the next, really next weeks or months, how China intends to cooperate with this process, with this process of uh, debt, of this debt service moratorium. Uh, and I think it's it's really a big, big important question, and by implication, is how soon will the the rest of the IMF, uh, the the big guys, agree to the new quotas that will formally elevate China into number two? This is a, a, this is non-trivial, and uh, we're going to find out some important things right now. Larry, could I say one more thing? Sure. That I just want I just want to emphasize. That uh, with, as I tried to was trying to explain, you you have no new big initiatives on the scale that you had at the global financial crisis. The big boys and girls have got a permanent uh, permanent unlimited swap lines among their central banks. They don't have the same kind of vulnerability that they did in the in the um, uh, in the financial crisis. Europe is undertaking, despite all the all the drama, uh, they've undertaken much bigger actions than they did in the financial crisis. The new initiative here is to try to take care of the low-income countries. The guys who have been left hanging implicitly are the big emerging market countries that are in the G20 for which no provisions, new provisions have been made. We're talking Turkey, we're talking Indonesia, we're talking South Africa. Argentina's already in a tough spot. And uh, Brazil, although they're a favored friend of the Fed, uh, is, uh, is obviously in a difficult, difficult spot. I think this is going to be uh, really the uncertainty that could in, could infect markets and uh, financial markets in the next few weeks and months. Thanks. Thanks, John. Which just shows the variety of topics. I'm going to move from you know, Turkey swap lines to uh, back to summer camp. Jordan, um, you know, one of the things we talked about was polio in comparison. So. Camp Horseshoe was around in the 1950s when there was a polio epidemic that would cripple or kill children. Here we have a disease that doesn't appear to affect children hardly at all. Um, How do we think about risk-reward in terms of children going to summer camp is question number one, using polio as an example. And second is um, if the county or the state or the federal government say camps can go, is Camp Horseshoe planning to be open? And third is um, in order to keep your community safe, are you thinking this year there'll be no uh, parents' weekend? Sure. Yeah. So the risk-reward question is really the, the big thing that's out there with all these camp directors and owners and so forth. Interesting you said about the polio scare for years after. So that's in the 40s and 50s at parents' weekend. Horseshoe was a camp I had gone to as a, as a kid, and then uh, my wife and I reopened it, but as for years, all the way through the 1980s, they wouldn't allow kids under 13 to come on Parents Weekend, going back to the time period where they thought kids could be the carriers for polio. So I think these tie in together. You know, number one, as we said, there's going to be a new normal in society after this, and that you know, when we come out of this, as we're coming out of it, and clearly that's going to also be the case at camp. You know, will we have one seven-week session? You know, we're, we're a camp that either kids can come for eight weeks or or first session, first four weeks, or second four weeks. We're already discussing not having two sessions, creating one session with no parents weekend. Again, as I'm hearing the doctors talk and so forth about how we set a baseline and create a safe environment to safe haven within camp. 
terms of opening camp, and this is a big question, I think, for all of the businesses to a lot of the guys that are speaking, is where is the sovereignty on these issues? We heard Trump talk, you know, at one point he was in charge, and then he realized, you know, that's not federalism and that the governors are in charge. Well, it's the same thing in our businesses. There's governors that can make rulings for the state of Wisconsin, as an example. But county health departments really have the sovereignty because they have to give you their license we have to get a license before the summer starts every year, have our doctor's orders, um, and that will be the question. We've already reached out to our health department to kind of create, a, let them know what we're doing. The question will be is can these small towns around the country, are they going to be worried about, hey, if we have a camp and we create an epidemic within these little communities, can our health systems handle this? You know, we'll have to work that out, too. But, yeah. Larry, Larry, can I make just one personal observation about camp? In 1952, in the summer I graduated college, I was a counselor at a camp in Maine, at Casco Village. There were a bunch of camps up there, uh, uh, upper-middle-class, wealthy kids uh, from uh, New England, upstate New York, and so on. And I remember no restrictions of any kind. Nothing was ever mentioned. I just, just, just wanted to comment on that in terms of how people reacted then in comparison to this. And at the University of Pittsburgh, finishing my third and fourth years, uh, working there with Jonas Salk and the Municipal Hospital Laboratory right across the street from the Pitt Medical School and then participating in the uh, administration of the vaccines and so on. And then in just the next several years doing autopsies on all of these people, the VA hospital, tuberculosis, and VA uh, uh, tuberculosis, Dr. and, and, Dr. and Dr. polio. Dr. Yeah. would you possibly want to have spend a week up at Camp Horseshoe this summer and be our camp doctor for a week? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's I, I, the only point I'm making is that I, I, I don't know. I just the reaction to this whole business is just so different from all the other situations that that all of us have dealt with, and and so on. And I, I just is your don't point, think that, Zero, that you know we've had much more as dangerous or potentially even much more dangerous um, pandemics. Yes. And we have not shut the economy down. We have yes, 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 it is. Yes, it is. In other examples, we have cases where the pandemic was much more dangerous towards children. And here this isn't even dangerous towards children, and yet we've locked the children away. Yeah. And, and how about like the dangers to all the children? How about the dangers to all the children who, who are being mistreated in different ways and who are being deprived of medical care and attention. And I, 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 you know, I don't want to take up everybody's time, but I, what I'm saying is that this situation is just not sustainable. And you talk about children and the damage to people and this business about elective medical procedures. Do you know always that that little bump, oh, it's just a fibroadenoma? How do you know it's not an early carcinoma which may metastasize by the time that Mrs. Jones is permitted to go and see her doctor. Uh, uh, and how do you know this? Well, this, if this disease that I have, this problem, is not really serious. And how do you know it's not an incipient disease of a more serious nature? And then the legal processes, I'm an attorney, too. What about that? People that want to handle things that need to take care of things, whether it's divorce or first-degree murder, the legal processes are closed on. This is not sustainable. This is, this is not civilization society. It cannot be continued. Larry, I get to cut in. It's Jordan again. I think for us to create best practices, though, moving forward is the best idea. I mean, either way, to try to create best practices and create a safe environment, 
you know, would be what, what would be, I think, sustainable for the economy moving forward. Great. Okay. Um, Crane, you know, thinking about baseball as a, kind of a multi-party system, you've got the fans, you've got your season ticket holders, you've got your players, you've got these big contracts, you've got these owners, you've got TV. There are a lot of different players, and the public who cares deeply about your game. Um, when there's a consequence, consequence like this, who should make these decisions about play, about risk, about is this an owner's decision, is it a player's decision, is it the governor's decision, is it the ticket holder's decision? Who should really participate in this activity in terms of who, who, who should make the call? Well, there's a question of who should make the call and then who, who will make the call. And, and honestly, the, you know, my feeling on this is that the, the who should make the call is the, the, the science community. I've really enjoyed hearing everyone uh, who's far more educated on that than, than me talk today because ultimately our responsibility is to the, the, the players and our fans uh, to, to provide a safe environment. You know, I think baseball through the generation, through two world wars and, and other pandemics has been this great uh, national unifying uh, moment that people, uh, you know, really find their, their themselves celebrating all that's great about our country. And we saw that right after 9-11 when games first started again in New York. Um, I think the same thing will happen here ultimately when, when it's safe to enjoy the game in person. Uh, as I said earlier, I think we'll be enjoying it on television much sooner than that. Um, but this is one of those things where we've had work stoppages, unfortunately, from time to time in baseball. Those are typically driven by a labor situation where uh, a collective bargaining agreement ends and the players and the owners can't reach an agreement. This is, this is really unique. Um, this is a work stoppage not driven by economics, not driven by service time or the usual issues that we debate with our, our players. So it's it's been really reasonably uh, conciliatory between the players and, and the owners. Everyone wants to see the game get back on the field. Today, the pay players are not getting paid, uh, so uh, they have something uh, to strive for. Obviously, the owners are, are losing hundreds of millions of dollars uh, if this were to go through and we didn't play this year. So there, we are aligned. You know, you've got the governors, as I mentioned earlier, the, the state of Arizona, immediately welcoming baseball back as soon as we wanted to go back to Arizona and begin playing. Uh, and then our governor in, in California says he's nowhere close to letting baseball, even without fans, begin in, in the stadium. And you've got five teams that play in California, so that's a real issue. So they're involved. Um, you know, and so I, I, I really, I know... Maybe, maybe just changing the subject, John, a little bit. Um, yeah. You know, Major League Baseball has, you know, 20,000, 50,000 fans in, in the place. But it, in, in contrast to, say, Little League or high school or college ball or even the minor leagues, um, do you think we should be allowing um, young people to be playing baseball if I tell you there's, there's no fans in the audience? Yeah, I think, I think it's sort of like the bell curve. I think you have Little Leagues should probably play this summer. I think you, can, you don't have television crews and significant number of umpires, trainers, coaches, nutritionists, et cetera. I think if you can uh, certify that the kids are, are safe going in and, and sort of baseball by its nature is a socially distant sport. If you think the think about it, the closest two people together are the catcher and the hitter. Um, but unlike basketball where uh, and, and really every other sport where, where the, the natural part of the game is to bring people close to each other, baseball somewhat or somewhat diversified in the field. So I think, I think that's a possibility. The high school season's already been lost. Um, the other thing about baseball is to, to get the pitchers ready to play 
it usually takes a month of preparation. So with the high school, you know, era coming to an end, and the same thing's true for, for college. Um, and then on the, on the other end of the bell curve is, is the professional side where there are enough economic incentives on the players and the owner's part uh, that we can put in practices like a daily test. I don't think, you know, young kids would ever subscribe to a daily test before they came into the clubhouse. Uh, I think you'll see, so I think you'll see the pros play and I'll think you'll, I think you'll see very loose, uh, uh, sort of the age group groups playing, uh, maybe by the end of the summer. Great. And, uh, going to Dan and Mark about the oil market. Um, it seems to me what we were taught in our, our freshman economics class was that oil is, uh, has a very inelastic supply function in the short run that can result in, a collapse or surge in prices depending upon uh, small changes in supply. Um, what we have here today is an incredible demand shock. Um, you know, 97% decline in jet fuel demand is, is beyond the pale. 70%. Um, 70%. Oh, 70 I missed it. 97 was, um, the, was the, uh, the, the, the cut in uh, future airline oh, reservations. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, what do you think you know, look, we're, we've closed the economy for a couple of months. It, on some day, we're going incre- to go back to normal, maybe not all at once, but it'll start to open up, and demand will return back to normal. Do you see oil prices, oil production going back to something more normal pretty quickly? Um, the forward markets in oil prices have it back in, you know, the 30s in a couple of years. How do you see that overhanging supply kind of, and, and reintroduction of production resulting in some sort of normal oil markets. Mark, do you want to go first, or do you want me? <laughs> go ahead, Dan. Okay, I, well, I think, well, I would say, I mean, we're using as an average price for this year, and please recognize that we could change this number tomorrow around $34, and in the 40s <laughs> next year. Uh, but And we do see that overhang of supply uh, being a really big issue to deal with. And then the question is, what kind of economic growth do we have? Is it? Uh, I think that will be a, a prime determinant, as well as how fast things open up again, and when people feel that they want to travel again. One change, of course, is people realize they can do a lot on Zoom, and uh, you know, companies, you know, there may be less commuting in the future. So we don't. I mean, we're not thinking that we're going to see demand bounce back to anywhere near the 100 million barrels a day uh, that it was. Uh, you know, on you know, uh, on January one. The only thing I would add to that, from a producer's perspective, is that the and Dan touched on this earlier, is that the amount of of capital that would be required to get us back to the level of production, particularly in the U.S. and unconventional plays, uh, is it's simply not going to 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 be available. And so I think it would be hard for the U.S. to return in any reasonable period of time uh, to the level of, of production uh, that we that we saw, you know, even six months ago. And we talk about oil has now become very inexpensive. What does that mean for some of the alternative energy sources that are were always more expensive than oil, even in even when oil was expensive? Well, uh, I mean, solar costs have come way, way down, but solar isn't really competing with oil. Uh, solar is competing well with gas, and it's competing in the in the power industry. And you still have strong mandates by states to uh, put more renewable power into into place. 
but I think finance there too is going to be an issue. And the other thing that people really haven't wanted to look at is this is, you know, the solar industry is an industry that is concentrated and dominated by China. By far, you're talking 70, 80, 90% of the supply, depending on what it is, comes from China. Yeah, so I Why think there's matter? a real... You can Why does it matter if the solar panels come from China? Pardon me? Dan, why does it matter if the solar panels come from China? Well, I think that um, I think there's going to be well, first of all, well, two things. One, one, you could say from a trade point of view, it doesn't matter. Two, there's a sense, in, you know, among some people that the Chinese really uh, uh, subsidize this. And three, I think that one of the things that comes out of this, I think, is a whole questioning of supply chains and dependence, and and you know, this will be part of the question of this larger growing rift with China. On the renewables, Dan, well, on the renewables, Dan always talks about the energy transition by addition, not substitution. And I think that uh, that this lower commodity prices probably guarantee that he will be correct. That that it will probably preserve the amount of time that oil and natural gas uh, have a a you know fundamental part of the energy mix. But I do think there are opportunities for or a different way of looking at, at renewables and solar. We, for example, we have a, uh, a technology group that's working on a, a next generation solar panel that will be uh, cheaper and, and easier to manufacture. And so I think that, you know, what you will see out of a disruption like this, maybe not ours, but that, you know, there will be, as there always are, uh, you know, some technology um, that either makes solar more cost competitive even relative to low, low oil and gas prices or, or, or a new store, well, storing uh, renewable energy, that, that I do think you'll see more of that emerge because it will face, it will, this is placing uh, cost pressure on renewables, um, you know, in, in the same way as everyone else in the industry. All right. Uh, Steve, if you're still on the line, um, Steve, Housing historically has been a very cyclical industry uh, that follows the economic cycle, and obviously, you know, we're in a sharp contraction right now. But there are some people that hope for a V. Others think it's the U. Other people think it's the L. You know, I think that we don't really know yet. But depending on what kind of cycle we get, how do you think housing or home building specifically will do in the face of the various different type of economic uh, responses? Yeah, thanks. It's a um I think the uh, until the most recent recession, the Great Recession or the housing bust, housing was always early in and early out of recessions. And since uh, uh, I think that this time it will be more like that than the recent time, that uh, housing tends to recover quickly. And uh, so I think the, that we will see a problem. We'll see order decline in our industry nationally, and it'll vary by area. Um, but um, I think that because we started with such a shortage position, uh, that we should be in good shape to come out of it sooner. It, it won't housing won't really recover until consumer confidence though. And so when consumers start believing it's getting better, housing will soar. Great. So um, usually when I end this call, um, I ask each of our participants to say something optimistic, um, and so we can end on an optimistic note. Historically, um, it got pretty depressing uh, when we talk about number of people who are going to die, people who are going to get sick, and how long we're going to be stuck in these bunkers. 
I think today's call actually was much more, has been our most optimistic call by far. That being said, I'd like to go uh, man-to-man and ask them individually something optimistic we can think of that we may have missed. Steve, why don't I start with you? What, uh, what optimistic thing do you have to say about what's going on? Oh, boy, that was quick. Um, so for yeah, I read the, that, gotcha. the optimistic, uh, I think everything I said was optimistic, but um, yeah. I do think that there will be a lot of positive change that comes out of uh, uh, technology and uh, how people have figured out how to do business at home and just restructuring of things that uh, there'll be winners and losers, but I think there'll be a lot of winners out of it uh, and that it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how businesses adapt as things open up again. Dan? Well, two things. One, certainly how we, how we will work differently. And two, I think that given all these pressures and uh, how difficult it's been, the resilience of our energy supply system has been very impressive. And that's the basis of everything else. Mark? I think it's it's forced us all to uh, realize what's truly important, and to and that there are some choices we previously not thought were were possible in terms of you know working from home, et cetera, that we'll now be willing to make, which will uh, ultimately lead to better outcomes. Crane. Yeah, I said this earlier. I, I think um, I think we've all come to appreciate the things we might have taken for granted, and um, I, I believe in the healing power of baseball through our country's history it's it's kind of showed itself to be a resilient sport that uh it, it's got a slower pace and it allows people to communicate in between plays and while some of the younger generation kind of chide the, the game for being a little slower i think i think we're all going to enjoy a day in the ballpark uh with friends and family wonderful jordan i i truly believe camp is a place that teaches kids determination and resiliency and it's always been a safe place for so many kids. So I'm hoping that, that we're able to be that, that safe place again this summer. John Lipsky? Although I've been saying that the uh, multilateral institutions haven't been playing a central role as they did at the global financial crisis. In fact, individual countries have taken much stronger action much faster than they did back then. And at the same time, as I tried to describe today, there's really a possibility that China is going to take a step forward towards a more collaborative uh, approach to the international institutions. We didn't talk about it today, but there's also, I think, a likelihood that Europe is going to come out of this stronger than people seem to think today. So uh, challenges are unprecedented, but the actions taken to, to try to solve the situation also are unprecedented in scale and rapidity. Interpol? We had the shortest flu season uh, recorded in recent history because of the quarantine. I think you will see the habits learned by societies everywhere globally will make the general burden of infectious disease across the board decline, and I think people will take their health much more seriously. Cyril? Well, I just think maybe overall people have learned that they have a great potential to function under tremendous pressure of an ongoing nature. And in that sense, in a broad uh, overall psychological manner, although it's been a heavy price to pay, that uh, we're, you know, learned something. We've learned something about just uh, how strong we can be and, and how strong the processes of government and the various facets of it and can continue to be even under these kinds of adverse conditions. 
Thank you. David? Well, uh, you know, ever since the human being came on this earth, we've been subjected to various uh, attempts by nature to destroy us. Uh, the uh, Black Plague in Europe did, a, did its work. The pandemic of uh, 1917, 1918 did its work. We're now in a situation where we have the facilities. We have an industry that knows how to search out new treatments. We have a medical facility, medical system that understands better what's happening. I think this particular plague will not be as bad as the ones that have ravaged mankind in the past. And uh, maybe we'll find out enough that we can keep the next one from being even worse than that. Derek? Yeah, well, I, I spoke to vaccine development, but it's important to realize there's another technology out there that could be coming online even faster, monoclonal antibodies. They won't give you permanent immunity, but it could be that we have a real therapy that knocks down the coronavirus in sick people in an even shorter time frame. One way or another, we're going to win. Great. Well, I want to thank all my speakers, and I'd like to thank all our listeners. Uh, we'll see you again next week. Thank you so much, everybody. Bye-bye.